0: In the high desert in the great american southwest i'm art bell slamming into your radio like a supercharged nanoparticle
1: of unopinion. my name is george nam i'm richard serrett
0: this is Connie willis i'm george nori welcome to coast to coast day it's great to be here
1: Welcome to Coast to Coast PM, the number one unofficial Coast to Coast AM podcast. My name is Paul, and I'm here to bring you another special interview episode of C2C PM. Today, Chris and I are talking with Dr. James Tabor. Dr. Tabor is the author of Why Waco Cults in the Battle for Religious Freedom in America, and he is an expert on the tragedy at Waco, testifying before Congress, writing his book, and he was also involved in the siege itself, attempting to prevent the tragic outcome that did ultimately occur. On February 28th of 1993, the BATF attempted to serve a no-knock dynamic entry warrant, uh, on the Branch Davidian's home, referred to by the media as Compounds. Uh, essentially, what that means is that they showed up in cattle cars and tried to bust in. Uh, it went awry, and it resulted in a 51-day siege that ultimately ended on April 19, 1993, in tragedy as the building at Mount Carmel burns to the grounds. 76 Branch Davidians, including 25 children and two pregnant women, along with David Koresh, were all killed in the fire. So today, we're going to be talking about the Branch Davidians, the idea of cults and whether or not that is even a helpful term to use, what the Davidians actually believed, what David Koresh was, was teaching, uh, and also how this could have gone differently. Um, which I think is probably one of the most important pieces. So Dr. Tabor knows a ton about this. I think that you all are really going to enjoy the conversation. And if you like his stuff, we're going to link to his YouTube channel, uh, where to buy his book and his website in the show notes. So please check that out. Uh, But without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome to another special interview episode of Coast to Coast PM. Today, Chris and I are talking with Dr. James Tabor. Dr. Tabor is a prominent scholar of Christian origins in ancient Judaism. He has combined his work on ancient texts with extensive field work in archaeology in Israel and Jordan and was the co-director of the acclaimed Mount Zion Excavation in Jerusalem. You can find his work at jamestabor.com. Dr. Tabor was involved in the 1993 Waco tragedy, drawing upon his expertise in understanding of ancient biblical apocalyptic ideas, and he testified before Congress in 1995 Waco hearings. He also co-authored the book, Why Waco? Cults and the Battle for Religious Freedom in America, along with Eugene Gallagher, which I read, and it is fantastic, so I highly recommend it for sure. Uh, Dr. Tabor, thanks for joining us today.
0: Good to be with you, Paul and Chris. Um I hate that we're talking about such a sad subject, but uh, it needs to be talked about even thirty years after. so
1: i I definitely agree. And one of the big reasons why I was hoping to talk with you today is, you know, on our podcast, we cover a, a wide variety of topics, um, typically fringe topics as well. And it also involves talking about um, cults. And reading your book reframed for me in a lot of ways, the way that I think of groups that are labeled, to be cults and that was something that i was i was really hoping to talk through with you as well um, but to to start off i would really love just a, a quick introduction of, of your background with uh the siege on the branch civilians and the waco tragedy in general and, and really how you got involved from you know being a professor at university of north carolina charlotte um during a tragedy that was occurring all the way over in texas okay
0: yeah well You know, I study ancient Judaism and early Christianity. In other words, I'm a a Bible scholar, basically. Hebrew Bible, New Testament, Dead Sea Scrolls. So you wouldn't expect that I would be in the field at all of what we in the academy call new religious movements. That's our preference rather than the word cult. Uh, And actually, let me just start with that. I think as people are listening, it would be good to kind of clear that deck. The day of the fire, so I'm going all the way to the end, April 19, 1993, 30 years ago. Uh, I think it was the day after, actually, Bill Clinton had a press conference in the Rose Garden. And among other things, expressing grief and shock and sorrow at what, how it had all turned out. He did say at one point, uh, maybe that should be a warning to those who might be tempted to join cults. And this is the president of the United States, a Rhodes scholar, well educated, very bright. And yet he fell into the same pattern that all of the media, almost without exception, does. And that is to referring to certain groups as cults and others as just what bona fide religions. And the thought that came to me, and I'm sure many of my academic colleagues, we don't really live in ivory towers in this sense because we're dealing with religion, which is really on the ground. Even ancient Christianity, people are reading their Bible today as Koresh was, we'll talk about that, and applying it as if it's uh, applicable to 20 uh, or to 1993 or even today, 2023. So my thought was, wait a minute, uh, would the government be capable of putting out a list of approved and disapproved religions? And how would that list be compiled? And who would you consult? And by what criteria would you make such a list? And I knew what he meant. And I know what people mean when they say, well, that's a cult, isn't it? but it's actually a statement with very little historical perspective. Let me tell you about a cult leader. It's uh, quite a long time ago, but he told people to sell all they have. Sounds like a good mark of a cult leader. He said that he's the only way and conduit of truth in the whole universe. If you don't hear him, you know, basically, you're lost, you're, 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 not, you're not really in a relationship with God, and you should hate your father, mother, brothers, sisters, even your own life, be willing to die. And, of course, you know who I'm talking about, I think, Jesus of Nazareth, the guy I study. Now, that just rolls people back when you say that, oh, Tabor said that Jesus was a cult leader. Well, by the definitions of Roman society, he was. And the Romans did call the early Jesus movement as, as we historians referred to it, because it's really before it became Christianity. They did call it a cult. And it was actually at one point in the second and third century a forbidden religion. It was on the blacklist. In other words, you you shouldn't be part of this. So the United States of America, based on our First Amendment. And our Second Amendment. Uh basically the idea of free speech, free press, and that the government will not make any laws either promoting or inhibiting the free exercise of religious faith. That is just such an incredible principle. Just about no country in the world even claims to follow it, because even in Europe, you have state churches still in most cases. We just saw the coronation of. King Charles III, and it's basically done in a church, and it is a church anointing service where he's crowned with the blessings of Jesus Christ and so forth. And yet we would say, well, England, you know, they're a liberal democracy. What about France? What about Germany? What about all of Western Europe? So, this idea that the Americans had all the way back to our founding is so bold and radical. And you almost don't want to do it because it really says that people can believe anything they want. And we have laws about harming minors, and we have laws about any kind of compulsion or kidnapping people and making them do something. But in terms of uh, persuading people to believe things, even children, you know, think of a devout religious group, I won't name any. But what we would call in our field a high-demand religion, meaning, you know, you basically give your whole life over to it. It would be the chief characterizing way to describe, say, your family or your individual life, what you think of when you rise up, when you go down, when you go to bed. Think of uh, very orthodox Judaism, certain forms of really conservative traditional Catholicism where you can even add this threat of hell to people that if they don't follow this. Uh, So the idea of high demand can be in any group and it can be spread through groups. And then then usually people throw in a charismatic leader. All you need to have a cult in a Baptist church then is a real dominant preacher. And I think we, I see programs all the time on some of the streaming services like about Hillsong or about right here in Charlotte, Elevation. I'm not calling those cults at all, but the idea that once you go in, I mean, you basically give your whole life to it. I've taught at Charlotte. Uh, I, re- I retired last summer, but I, I taught 33 years there. So I I'm, had my ear to the ground in terms of some of these student evangelist groups. And I'm telling you, some of the, I've had parents call me because I'm the historian of religions. Could you talk to my son or daughter? They're talking about dropping out of school and doing missionary work because they're following this person who's saying that you know if people are going to hell without Christ, it's much more important than a college degree. You need to, you know, get out and you, all kinds of things of that nature. See, see I think your listeners will be able to pick up on the problem. So what is a cult? A cult is a high demand religion usually characterized by some kind of a charismatic leader or group of leaders that have a lot of control over the group, usually pretty well say our way or the highway, you know, we've got the truth. And they use universally, they use phrases like, well, when did you learn the truth? So this could be typically, you know, in their founding in the 19th century, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, and so forth, from which the chorus group comes to the latter Seventh-day Adventists. But it's really important to distinguish, I think, uh, these categories so that you don't just pejoratively use a word like cult as a label even if you think, well, that religion, man, that they are so strict, you know, they tell them how to dress and how to act and hairstyles and all kinds of things. Lots of religious groups do that, not just Christian. So in our country, uh, people can believe and practice whatever they want unless they break laws. And if they break laws that are the universal laws of the state or the county or the city or even the country then they can be held accountable and even then you have appeals and a court system Uh, we know of cases where individuals have gone all the way to the supreme court over a freedom of faith issue or something of that nature so that's just kind of a preface but the way i got involved was um, really never having heard i've heard of the seventh day adventists for sure and i had studied them Because my field in early Christianity, more than any other aspect of it, would be apocalyptic beliefs in the ancient world. So Jesus, as an apocalyptic preacher, the first words out of his mouth, according to our earliest gospel of Mark, were the time is at hand, the time is fulfilled, rather, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, uh, John the Baptist. The axe is now at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and cast into the fire. So, this kind of preaching that we now call hell, fire, and brimstone preaching is pretty much throughout the New Testament. Even Paul, who writes the love chapter in First Corinthians thirteen, also talks about those who obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come. Inflaming fire, taking vengeance upon them. So, you know, Christians have ways of domesticating their faith and saying, "Well, you know, we can uh, understand where what their views were, and we don't necessarily take all that literally, and so forth." Particularly, the mainline churches or so-called mainstream churches, but a lot of the Bible-believing churches that take would say the Bible is perfect and inerrant and the truths of the whole universe are in that book. Uh, They can very easily move towards a really controlling system, and yet it's not against the law. So I want to say all of that. So I had never heard of David Koresh or the Branch Davidians. I just hadn't drilled down that deeply in terms of Seventh-day Adventist history. But my wife called me to the uh, television, it was a Sunday, the day of the raid, February 28th. There was a World Trade Center bombing, I believe, that same day. So two horrendous events took place on February 28th, 1993. That's the one that didn't bring down the towers, of course, but shook up the foundations. It was sort of underground and it was uh, quite a big event. But the shootout got a lot of attention, nonetheless, and so I rushed down. It was a Sunday morning or noon. I don't, I don't have my notes right with me to say the time of the raid, but you, you probably looked into that. Certainly in my book and all the literature, and even on Wikipedia, if you want to look it up, every minute has been accounted for. And so uh, I started listening, and as I listened, it just so happened that David Koresh himself. Wounded in the side and in the hand, was on the phone, uh, and they were playing it live. He called into a Dallas station, I think it was KRLD or something. So all of a sudden, I'm hearing this Messiah guy, David Koresh, whom I of whom I'd never heard, and he's spouting off. You know, in Revelation six, you've got the book with seven seals, just going. You know, and as you probably know, because you're in the media. Uh, You know, you get somebody on that starts quoting the Bible and especially quoting chapter and verse and moving through, you know, in Isaiah two, verse four. And then if we go to Zechariah six and you kind of glaze over and that's clearly what people were doing. Uh, So here's this guy in Texas. I was born in Texas. I was uh, first few years of my life lived in San Antonio My parents are native Texans, and even though I've moved and left and went other places uh, since being an adult, you know, I did, I was familiar with Waco. I'd been to Waco, uh, went to the University of Texas one summer to study Hebrew language, just in an intensive summer program. So it really drew me that way, too. I know Texas culture. And here is this guy with his Texas accent, you know, teaching the Book of Revelation. Uh, Then on March 2nd, which was just uh, two days later, the FBI had come in after the first day. The BATF did the initial raid, and the FBI had come in, and they uh, allowed David to do a one-hour broadcast over a Christian radio network. And he had said if he does that, he will come out. And there are different reasons that he... He didn't come out. Uh, he claims that he had expected it to be really world—not necessarily worldwide—but on national media, not just a Christian station. Who's really listening to that? Uh, but I got the—I got a copy of the transcript. It was published in uh, the Waco paper, I think, the next day, and I was just appalled at. Whoever had done the transcript had no knowledge of the Bible. I'll give you my favorite example. At one point, David referred to something they transcribed as the liar of the tribe of Judas. You know, who would know what that is? I mean, I don't care what church you go to. Who's the liar of the tribe of Judas? There's no tribe of Judas. And what do you mean, the liar? Well, what it was, it was the lion of the tribe of Judah, a very well-known phrase in the Bible that many would be familiar with. There are quite a few of those errors. I think I counted over 35 transcription errors. So if you just read it, you would say, you know, I don't even know what the, the it's, it's just word salad. It, he's just spinning. And remember, he was wounded when he, when he did this very weak But he did try to put forth, you know, who they were and what the message is. It's worth listening to. You can find it easily. It's in the archives or you can read it. But hearing it's even better. Uh, The Wake Baylor University has archives, there are different Waco archives that you can get everything on now, which you couldn't do for years and years. But it's all been digitized now. So uh, my friend Phil Arnold in Houston, Texas, he has a PhD from Rice University in the same field as I'm in, you know, early Christianity, both interested in apocalyptic movements, what we would call today uh, Bible prophecy belief, you know, people who think, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, or you have heard of Howell Lindsey in the 1970s, the book was The Late Great Planet Earth, was the all-time bestseller of the 70s, next to the Bible. Of course, the Bible is always the bestseller, but all-time bestseller in America. And I forgot, I think it sold, oh God, it was up to, you know, 40, 50 million copies translated into numerous languages. And it was just a standard kind of evangelical, conservative Christian attempt to say that we're in the last days and the state of Israel is the sign of the end, and then the Six-Day War, 1967, and there's a countdown to the end, and here's what's going to happen. So this stuff has been out there. Uh, Koresh wasn't the first to do this, but this is a small group who are also observing the Seventh-day Sabbath, which most Christians would say, so they're kind of Jewish, right? Well, they definitely weren't Jewish uh, even though it was said early on that Koresh believed he was God or Christ or all of those kinds of things, it became clear as we learned more about him that he was talking about a second Messiah figure that he thought was identified in the book of Revelation and in different prophecies, particularly the book of Isaiah and the book of Psalms. So I I talked to my friend Phil. And he's, you know, not that far from Waco. And he said, well, I'm going to jump in the car and go up there because we, we talked about how we, we understood where he was coming from because we could kind of translate those transcription errors and so forth. And it wasn't that different from lots of apocalyptic groups that would interpret Daniel 11, which is the scenario of what will happen in the Middle East at the end and so forth. And it was right after the Gulf War. And there was quite a bit of interest in uh, Saddam Hussein, remember, was still in power after the first Gulf War. So people were reading prophecies prophecies like Daniel 11, where it talks about a king of the north will come into the richest provinces of the Middle East, Kuwait, maybe, you know, and they begin to think, oh, Iraq. And then the king of the south will come with a great army. Maybe that's George Bush with all of his allies and They will defeat and he will go back to his land and prepare for another time and so forth. So, of course, wasn't the only one thinking, "Okay, we're in the end times and these prophecies are being fulfilled. But he did believe, and this is typical of Adventist history, Seventh-day Adventist history, that God sends living prophets today. So, yes, you can study the Bible, Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah, New Testament, Book of Revelation, Book of Daniel particularly. You can study that. But also, God will empower in the last days a living prophet. And the founder of the SDA's Seventh-day Adventists was Ellen G. White. And she claimed to be an inspired prophet sent to herald, that's why well, it's called, Adventist to herald or proclaim that the time is what hand, at hand. And she came out of a movement called the Millerites. You might have heard of them, 1843-44. I cover some of this in my book, so you read it. But a lot of your listeners might not know that history. It's kind of the history of prophecy, belief. It really gets ramped up in the 19th century. But there's no state of Israel. But once you get to the 20th century with Zionism and the state of Israel in 1948 and then the Six-Day War in 67, where Jews or Israel has control of the old city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, you can open up a lot of these old prophecies that would have only applied when the Temple was standing in the first century in the time of Jesus. And then you can say, well, wait, This, this could be talking about the end times because it didn't happen, you know, the end didn't come with Jesus. Uh, Christians believe he was killed but was raised from the dead, is sitting at the right hand of God, is going to return again. So it's this idea of the second coming. So Koresh was living in that world, but he had a very particular claim. It has to do with Revelation chapter 10. And in the book of Revelation, there's seven seals and there's seven angels. And when you open the seventh seal, it's like a scroll sealed, and you open them one by one. And when you open the seventh one, you have the seven angels or messengers. We say angel, but the Greek word angelos, it's not even translated. We're just putting it into English. Angel, angelos. It means messenger. It doesn't have to be a heavenly being. So the one angel sounds Uh, His trumpet, uh, they have trumpets that they blow, which is like blowing out a message. So the Adventists had calculated all those messengers. Ellen G. White, I think she was uh, the third angel's message. And the Davidians then kept counting, and they had a fifth and a sixth, but they didn't have a seventh yet. The fifth was Victor Hadaf, who was an Adventist who broke away. He claimed that he was now the fifth messenger. And the sixth was Ben Roden, and he claimed he uh, what? I'm sorry, he, the fifth, he claimed he was the sixth. And so the seventh is still open for somebody to claim. And the Branch Davidians believe, because they're the remnant group being faithful to these prophecies, that someone of their group is going to rise up and claim that and, and have the proof of it. And that's what Koresh claims. So his early claim was, I'm the seventh angel messenger. I'm the seventh messenger. But if you read Revelation 10, it's kind of astounding because it says when the seventh messenger blows his trumpet, whenever his message goes out, time will be no more. And the mystery of all the prophets will be made known. So that's what he locked into. So the appeal he had to these followers, who were already part of the third angel's message, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, and now the seventh, was, I can unlock the seven seals of the sealed book that only the Lamb of God can do. And everybody would say, well, the Lamb of God is Jesus. And he would say, of course, it's Jesus. He came to give the revelation as the Lamb. But in the last days, there will be a final revelator that isn't Jesus, but is preparing the way for Jesus and shouldn't be confused with Jesus. So this is a Christian group. They took the Lord's Supper twice a day, morning and evening, bread and grape juice. I, I don't know. if I don't think they used wine. Uh, so they are devout Christians. If you ask a Branch Davidian, you know, who died for my sins and how am I saved through grace and faith? The answer is not going to be David, of course, it's going to be Jesus Christ. So this is a Christian group by any definition. You know, if you're taking general definitions, Christians are people that believe Jesus is the Messiah and he died for their sins and they're going to be saved if they believe in him. So they believed all that. But they also believe that uh, Jesus said, think not I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I came not to destroy, but fulfill so they began to say we should be keeping the laws of the Torah that apply to our own day. So for example, they didn't eat pork. They didn't think it was a spiritual sin, but Adventists generally uh, are vegetarians, so they wouldn't eat pork anyway. And they even go back to the Eden diet. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are told, you, know, you can have all the plants, uh, but that's gonna be your food. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, it's called the Daniel Diet. Some Christians try to follow it. It's the same thing, the kind of Eden Diet. So they, and also keeping the festivals. Like one of the things the FBI got really confused on fest is David David said early on in March, after he said, God has told me to wait, even though I promised to come out, I've got further revelation that I'm to wait. Well, that went over like you could imagine like oh here we go every time you know he's going to come out he's going to just change kind of like moving the goalpost. you know hey that's not fair you're changing the rules of the game uh but you know I've listened to hundreds and hundreds of hours of the tapes I've this is phone conversations for Sam Koresh his right-hand assistant Steve Snyder, some of the other Davidians talking to FBI negotiators. So I've heard them go over this endless times. I I totally followed it, and that's what I put into my book uh, based upon this inside knowledge, because the transcripts were out. And so what happens is they said, uh, he said, well, I'll let you know after Passover. Well, Most Gentiles who aren't Jewish think Passover is like one night and Jews meet and they have Passover. And you go, happy Passover. We had Passover. And usually it's uh, very close to Easter. So the Christians meet on Sunday and do Easter and the Jews do Passover. But if you look in the Bible, Passover is not one night. It's an eight-day festival. There's Passover and then the seven days of unleavened bread. Well, this group And it's all referred to as Passover. This is in the New Testament, too. Jesus goes up to keep Passover. Well, it's not just one day. He stays the whole week uh, all through his life as a Jew and so forth. So they're keeping the Jewish festivals, the seventh-day Sabbath, following the dietary laws, and basically trying to live a kind of biblical lifestyle, they would call it. So they're going to stand out as different from other people, for sure. Uh, and they also didn't. Uh, they believed that David was. Uh, they didn't believe that there's being. There would be no prophecy after the first century. They believed that they had a living prophet, and that was David's initial claim. So that's kind of how I got involved. And then Arnold and I were concerned with trying to interpret for the FBI and deal with the negotiators and try to let them understand what these seals were. And so the way we tutored ourselves, because I'm looking back now when I kind of know it all, but at the time we were just finding out, oh, they believe this, they believe that, they believe something else. We called one of the leading Davidians that David had sent out, Livingstone Fagan, he's British, and he was in jail. In Waco, and we were given permission to call him, and he was allowed to talk to us even for 45 minutes to an hour. We called him quite a few times. Phil and I, we get on a joint phone call with him. We basically just said, uh, Livingstone, and by the way, he has an MA in theology from a British university, so it's not like he's not some you know guy just slapping his Bible. I mean, he studied the languages, he you know, so we said, Livingstone, teach us your faith. Teach us your faith. Tell we want to help. And we will go and try to help the FBI to understand what are they dealing with. They're calling it a hostage barricade situation, which is crazy. That's like when some crazy person goes to a McDonald's, you know, and barricades himself and won't let anybody out unless you meet his demand. That's hostage barricade, but that's what they called it early on. You know, you have hostages. Well, the Davidians sent out a tape pretty early on. And by the way, I have a YouTube channel, James Tabor Videos, that I encourage people to look at because there's a whole section on Waco. And one of the things I just put on up is this virtually unknown tape. It's an interview with 22 of the members of the group. During the siege, that they sent out uh, to the FBI to say, in effect, "Hey, get to know us as human beings. This is my name. This is my. These are my kids. Why am I here? Do I want to come out and so forth?" In their interviews that Steve Steiner conducted with a video camera, and guess what? The FBI decided it's pretty shocking do not release that to the public. It's going to cause widespread sympathy for those people, which it does if you watch it. Now, you might think, God, who could get that crazy to believe that? But your reaction isn't that they're crazy as much as, you know, they've really gotten into the Bible in maybe a heavy way. You know how people today say, uh, maybe you shouldn't read the book of Revelation. You know, too many people have tried to. And they end up nuts, you know, they kind of lose their mind over it and they come up with all these crazy ideas and so far, none of them have happened. So lots of Christians, particularly in, you know, not just your mainstream churches like Baptist, Presbyterian, you know, Methodist, Episcopalian and all that, but just prosperous churches that are more interested in, you know, running a really good church Uh, and having a lot of members, they probably going to shy away from this crazy Bible prophecy stuff. Like, you know, Jesus will come when he comes. Like Billy Graham. Billy Graham sometimes would say he thought we might be in the end times. But then if you pressed him in an interview, I've heard him many times. You know, he's from North Carolina, where I've been for the last 33 years. And he would always say, well, we don't know. We don't know the day or the hour. Christ could come tonight. Remember, he'd always say that in his campaigns. Christ could come tonight. Well, if Christ could come tonight, then we don't need to wait for prophecy to be fulfilled in the Middle East. But there's another version of prophecy that says these things will happen first, and they will be the signs of Christ' coming. And that's what the Davidians believe that they're going to be they're going to be specific signs and indications. And when those take place, then you'll know you're near to the end. And that's what all these Bible prophecy groups have kind of uh, built upon. There are a lot of them today, by the way. This has not gone away, and it is not going to go away. If anything, it'll increase, because we've got so many divisions in the world, and we've got climate challenges, and we've got governmental challenges of every sort, and we just went through covid you know, some other thing could leak out and cause things that we we say, you know, even in the media. well, that's that's like a biblical plague, you know? Use the term that's apocalyptic in its dimensions. We had a local fire here in Charlotte the other day. burned down a couple buildings. Sadly, three people that were working in the building. It was in it was being constructed. But, I noticed the local media said, you know, that fire was apocalyptic. So the word is just out there now in the media, you know, things that are apocalyptic. So we are in those times. There's a sense in what you could say. Well, there's always been these. What about the 30 years war, the 100 years war, the bubonic plague that killed a third of Europe? Of course, terrible times have come every century that I can think of. I'm a historian all over the world. But. We're set up now with our communication, everything else, that a lot of people are really thinking, well, the Bible's going to get fulfilled. So that's the broad kind of background that Korish uh, came from. So we were concerned with uh, getting to know them. By the way, we didn't get to see those tapes until after it was all over. But now people can go watch them. Uh, and we didn't know what was happening on the negotiation tapes either. It's not like Phil and I got to listen in and advise them. Uh, Phil did get to talk to a few people, and they did let him. Uh, he went on the radio independently, and at one point he was on a program uh, in the Dallas area, and it uh, that reached Waco, and uh, they he said on the program the host said. We think the Davidians are listening. They still had uh, electricity at that point. It was early on in March. And if you're listening, move your radio antenna. They had a big antenna, satellite antenna. And all of a sudden, the antenna starts going like this. And he knew he was being heard. And all he was saying is, you know, I think those people in there are sincere and this raid should have never happened. Uh, we can talk about the raid. You can ask me all the questions you want, but you know, people say, well, child abuse, underage sex, statutory rape by any laws of most states, uh, all of that. Well, the raid was not about that. The raid was about the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms serving a warrant which was a dynamic entry warrant. And if you look at what happened with these two cattle car trailers full of people armed, looking like they're in an an assault brigade, rushing up to the building, and then the shootout breaks out, and the Davidians defended themselves. You know, you can see how it just got out of hand uh, tremendously. But the Davidians always argued self-defense. Uh, all of them that I've talked to, there are some survivors, and I've met them all. I think I've met no, maybe two or three I haven't met. I've met five of them for sure. There were nine all together. They all say that David went to the front door when he saw what was happening, opened the door, stepped out, and said, wait, wait, don't shoot. There's women and children here. Let's talk and then somehow firing broke out and everybody disputes how it broke out. And he slammed the door shut and then he was shot uh, after that. And there's disputes as to when he was shot, but uh, the basic story that he gave is that he was shot through the door, the front door where he had stepped out. And another uh, member was shot and he, he later died, Perry Jones, who was a longtime member. So you got to realize the group goes back to the 1930s. They've been in Waco since the 1930s. David's a latecomer. You know, David, uh, he only showed up, I think, 1981 or two. And so he's barely been there 10 years. And when he first showed up, he didn't immediately say, I'm the seventh angel, I'm the new prophet. Uh, this is a message that he developed over uh, over the decade. And when... Lois Roden died, the wife of Ben Roden, the former leader. There was a real vacuum, and the question was, you know, well, who's going to take over? And David had already been showing great ability to interpret the scriptures in ways that were impressive to them. So if you ask a branch Davidian back then, why are you there? And they say this on the tape because nobody has ever interpreted the Bible to the satisfaction of explaining all the things that he covers and they would spend hours and hours in bible study instead of being a brainwashed cult where you got to sit here and you can't even go to the bathroom and the study's going to last six hours they were doing they would be like no no i want to hear more more oh god that was so amazing can, you know we could we go another hour and they would take breaks and you can i put a i put another video up i think i think it's on my website no i didn't put it because i didn't know the rights to it but you can find it on these different youtube channels but it's uh several of the vidians talking after the fire and everything's over and they're talking about how much they love the bible studies and it was a pleasure uh to be there that it's a community you know they're sharing things and so forth So I had to learn about it, and then uh, the siege went on, and uh, we came up, Phil and I came up with a plan to try to appeal to David to surrender, and uh, I can tell you all about that, but I've been talking the whole time. I'm going to give you a chance to jump in, clarify, go back, whatever you want, and then we can get into the idea of uh, how it might have ended peacefully.
1: No, definitely. Definitely. and That was um, really great. So thank you for that. One of the things that I wasn't quite aware of until reading your book and and what you just um, explained quite a bit right now was how in incredibly in-depth David Kresh was in his, uh, you know, general analysis and interpretation of the Bible. Um, and I know in the in the back of your book, you included um, his interpretation of the first seal, which he was working on all seven seals or was going to before the, the siege ended in tragedy like it did. But just reading through that and, you know, reading your analysis of it, it is honestly Really impressive. Um, so I was kind of curious to to get your perspective as someone who has studied the Bible and apocalyptic prophecy. I mean, what was your initial take when you were reading it? Because when I was going through it, I was like, this is these are connections that like I never would have put together. And he's weaving a narrative that if someone does believe the Bible is inerrant um and is coming from a tradition that that believes in in you know modern-day prophets, I could really see how someone would, you know, want to sit in an eight-hour Bible study with this guy based on the the work that he was doing.
0: For sure, for sure. And um, David was a very complex guy. I've learned a lot more since. And uh, there's a former Branch Davidian now that I trust a lot. Uh, He wasn't there during the siege. David had expelled him earlier because he, he didn't go along with this new light, which we can get into that involves the married couples becoming celibate and David taking the wives of some of them. And um, he was put out for that and other reasons, but his name is David Buns, B-U-N-D-S. And he has a YouTube channel called Branch Davidian History. And if you watch some of that, um, it's not... It's it's pretty negative on Koresh, but what he wants you to understand, because his whole family was in that movement even before David Koresh came along, that there was a substance to it, even if David himself, in many personal ways, uh, could be pretty capricious, and you know there'd be reason to say that, that guy's a real jerk or whatever. Uh, so like a lot of religious leaders, he definitely had his flaws to to say the least. But what kept them there and what allowed them to overlook the flaws is often he would apologize or cry or say, you know, I'm weak and this and that. And, but it was his knowledge of the text. That was it. And to me, uh, it's it's like uh if I take a King James Bible and I don't know Greek or Hebrew, I really don't know the history, you know, with, like he he's not going to a seminary and learning all the history of the ancient Near East and how it might reflect on the flood story with the Gilgamesh epic and things like that. Like you would learn in a college class. He didn't have any of that. So it's the King James Bible. It's an out-of-date translation. Uh, Many people love it, but that's because it's just tradition, but it's not the best translation. And there are a lot of mistakes in the English, like bad renderings or even the language has changed. Well, in that level, David's pretty ignorant because he might, for example, uh, David Buns points out, he used to talk about uh, Rahab. God is going to destroy Rahab. And then there is a Rahab person in the Bible. She's actually a prostitute in the book of Genesis. I'm sorry, in the book of, uh, not Genesis, uh, uh, Joshua, when the Israelites come in the land, and she saves the Israelites. Her name's Rahab. But he didn't know in Hebrew the names aren't the same. So he would talk about, well, why would that Rahab be cut to pieces? But the other word Rahab about God cutting to pieces means a sea monster. Rahab the sea monster. In the primeval creation where God had to push the waters away so there wouldn't be a flood. It's it's mythological. Well, he wouldn't know any of that kind of thing. So that's just an example where he could take a word that's in the King James Bible and make a whole teaching on it, and it's simply wrong because he isn't educated. And he's just, you know, but to him, that's it, the King James Bible. But he also felt that God had led him to see things. And I would call him a kind of a biblical savant with maybe a small S in the sense that, um, not that he had it memorized. Sometimes I've said he had it memorized. I don't mean like, if you just name a random scripture, the Bible's like 1500 pages, Hebrew Bible, New Testament, most editions. And you say, you know, what is Genesis 45, three? And he goes, he would I doubt if he would know that particular verse, if you know what I mean. But he has read the Bible many times. And he does have a mind that synthesizes things and puts them together. And that's, I think, the gift that he had. So he would, and he had a style in which uh, it was sort of like asking questions. I've listened to hours and hours and hours of his tapes. I got hold of his tapes. And remember, as I said, we talked to Livingstone Fagan, so he kind of, tutored us into Branch Davidian theology and what really Koresh theology and what he was all about. And so uh, it it was impressive for what it was in that closed interpretive world, you follow? Like Mm -hmm. if that was your world and the Bible's inspired and it's the truth and we're in the last days, then he's a guy that you could be persuaded to listen to because his claim to fame in Arnold and I dealt with this i mean we used it was uh bring me someone else to talk to uh like dr taylor and dr Arnold, who he did mention in his last letter that we have from him he mentions our names now i don't think he thought we knew so much that he's going to learn from us what we figured was if he did come out and there could be some kind of a news conference or Teaching where he could expound his ideas, and maybe win a self-defense case in terms of what happened February twenty-eighth, which his lawyer Dick DeGaren felt he had a good case for that. Very prominent Texas lawyer from Houston who started going in and meeting with him to give him his legal rights to surrender, and I think David would think that he has to show in front of all of his followers that Tabor and Arnold don't know anything. You know in a nice way you know like he might have said well what's your idea of the bird that comes from the east in the book of isaiah and you know i would probably be like mm, the bird from the east uh, i'm not sure i've looked at that lately and then he could go in for 10 minutes well you know that bird's mentioned also in the book of Revelation. and all of a sudden he's like my guess is that's what he thought he would do to us. <laughs> Uh, What we probably would have done to him is said, well, that's a mistranslation, actually, David. You know, if you believe the Bible is inspired, you got to go by the Greek and the Hebrew. And I don't think you study Greek and Hebrew. And uh, you can look it up. But I, I listen to a lot of your tapes, and you don't do that. You never say the Greek word, the Hebrew word is this, even though, you know, that is available for people to study. And a lot of Bible students look those things up in commentaries and so forth. That's not him because he's hearing right from God directly. But the biggest thing, I guess, uh, is his claim was that he was a sinful messiah and that that sinful messiah is prophesied in Psalm 40. And he used to say, I remember I have a tape on my YouTube channel called The Last Words of David Koresh. It's an audio. I really recommend you listen to it. Because you get to hear him and he's writing the seals and he's very positive, very happy, very upbeat in the early part of that tape. And this is actually. The Saturday or Friday before the fire, the fire was on a Monday, so you can imagine you're getting right up to the end and he is so excited. And one of the things he says, he goes, the negotiator's name was Dick, I think he goes, you know, Dick. When I go out and I go to jail, you can feed me bananas and you can make fun of me. And he said, but I've probably been better than the average cult leader, don't you think? You know, kind of joking like that. And then he goes, Did you take a shower for me? Because the negotiator had gone home the night before. And I think the negotiator said, Yeah, I took a couple. And he goes, Well, uh, you know what I want? I want a pizza. That's all I'm thinking of. And all my people, we want pizzas when we come out. And he says, oh, we give you that and a lot more than that. Just work it out, David. Get back to work on that manuscript. But then David added in that conversation, he goes, you you know, when I go to jail and everybody starts talking about, you know, he abused children. He has all these wives. He's this and that. They're not going to sit while I expound to them Psalm 40. Now You can look it up. And it talks about a messiah. And it talks about someone who hears the word of God morning by morning. He wakens me. He wakens me and speaks in my ear. And then it says, and lo, it is written in the scroll of the book of me. Scroll of the book. Where is there a scroll of the book that would write about somebody? See, there we go the book of Revelation, chapter six. You see what he's doing? And, but then it says, my sin, this is the guy talking. It's first person. My sins are more than the hairs of my head. So he would say, no, wait a minute. This is a future Messiah. God is speaking to him. He's going to interpret a book where it's written of him, but he's sinful. That's quoted in the New Testament, not that verse. But Psalm 40 is referred to in the New Testament as applying to Jesus. So aspects of it may apply to Jesus. But he would say, but, you know, you got to realize there's two messiahs. The first messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. The last messiah is the final messenger, that's me. Messiah means anointed or designated, inaugurated. You know, literally, they would pour oil over the head of a king or a priest. That makes you a messiah. Every priest in ancient Israel, if they were anointed with the oil as high priest, they were messiahs. So not every priest, every high priest, every king anointed with oil, the messiah. So the the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah in English, just means anointed one. So this guy in Psalm 40 is an anointed one, and Jesus was an anointed one. And so Koresh claimed to be that guy. So he had a lot of things like that, that if you started studying with him, uh, you you could get drawn into this uh, if maybe if you weren't taking a more historical, critical approach is the way I would take it. And I was also familiar from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the famous Dead Sea Scrolls, which are about a messianic, apocalyptic movement. A hundred years before Jesus, who are also interpreting some of these same prophecies, and then the Christians interpret them, and then down through history, different people, and then Chorus comes along. So I was familiar with this mode of somebody finding himself or herself in the scriptures and thinking, That's talking about me. I'm the one. It's kind of a crazy, mentally ill thing to do. But it's also quite common, and it wouldn't be mentally ill to the person who thinks they're true. Uh, so don't picture him as like walking the streets of Manhattan, you know, like a person with no home, muttering and saying all these incomprehensive things. No, if David met you in a coffee shop or whatever, he'd be like, "Well, did you bring your Bible with you? Let's turn over to Psalm forty, and let's and then let's go over to." Uh, some of the other psalms and connect those and let's go to isaiah 45 there's a messiah named cyrus cyrus in hebrews koresh so at least he knew that and uh is that the king of, of persia historically yes but notice it talks about christ coming back and sitting on the throne of david when that guy uh destroys babylon maybe babylon is not the ancient babylon maybe babylon was Rome in the days of Jesus. And today it would be all the forces of evil in our world are Babylon. Starts sound, Do you know reggae music? You know, uh, Peter Tosh and Marley and all of them, they talk about knock down the walls of the Babylon. You know, and they're talking about the corrupt culture of the world. So this symbolic reading of the book of Revelation is not something he invented, you know, where it's it's going to keep applying I think it applied originally to Nero and Domitian, the emperors in this Nero of 50s, 60s, and Domitian in the 80s and 90s CE or AD around the destruction of Jerusalem. So a lot of that fits, but then Christ didn't come. So a fundamentalist would say, well, then that can't be it, because in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I come quickly. Well, you could say, well, 2,000 years, not that long to God. But, you know, that's not the feeling you get when you read the book of Revelation. So these interpreters, not just the Davidians, but lots of prophecy interpreters, they would say that the first century fulfillments were a kind of a type or a trial run of the kinds of things that are also going to happen at the end. So it's like the first century was a run up to the end. And a lot of the forces were at work that will also be at play at the end, like an evil government, persecution of the saints, martyrs, and so forth. So what Arnold and I were most concerned about is we feared that they thought they were in the fifth seal. And if if you read the fifth seal it says that they are to rest a while and wait until the rest of their brethren are killed. Well, that is like, oh, boy. So if they think they're in the fifth seal, then he's been told now to wait. Are they going to all have to die? Do they think they're all going to die? And uh, we were concerned about that. So... Uh, the plan Arnold and I came up with was to go on this radio station that uh, Ron Engelman was the host. He's passed away now. Really wonderful man. And he really he didn't know anything about the Bible, the Davidians. He just believed in religious freedom. Good Texas guy. And he didn't think uh, federal agents should be able to drive up to any place. And uh, with their guns drawn without, you know, peacefully trying to serve a warrant, unless it's some armed camp that's just waiting to blow them away. But I'll give you an example, Sheriff, two examples, Sheriff Hartwell, no, Harwell, Sheriff Harwell also passed away now. Uh, he would go out, he'd been out to the property of Mount Carmel, they called it the compound, it's it's their spiritual center. How about spiritual headquarters? Or Bible study center, just calling it the compound alone is militarizing it. Like they're in the compound. It's where they lived and where they studied the Bible. and they live communally like the early Christians, you know, sharing all their goods in common and so forth. So anyway, if they were worried about the guns that Koresh was buying and the Davidians were buying, then, Harwell could have easily gone out there with them and uh, just a few agents maybe and knocked on the door or call. He would have called David, and said, look, there's some ATF guys that have some questions about your guns. And I, I guarantee you, David would say, tell him to come on out. He absolutely would. He wasn't hiding things. And the reason I know that is that's what he did say when his gun dealer, Henry McManon in Waco, called him because the ATF agents were talking to him. And he went back to the back. They were asking, what has he bought? And do you have any paperwork? Can we look at the paperwork? What does this group own? And he went back to the back and called Korish because he's a good customer of his. Uh, and he said, there's these guys asking. And David said about the ATF, he says, tell them to come on out. I'll talk. They can see anything I have. Now, that's a verified story. And uh, it's it's not just, you know, people defending Koresh. The reason is these fully automatic weapons that were found, a few, I, th- I think there were, I don't remember now, 10 or 12, they were converting semi-automatic so-called assault weapons that we hear about today that we have millions of them own today in our culture, and they, they were converting them from semi to fully automatic with a kit. And in Texas law, uh, I've been told that federal law didn't recognize it, kind of like marijuana. Uh, well, we don't recognize that marijuana is still a crime and you can go to jail for it. Okay. But generally, it's not getting enforced because whole states have open places and people growing it legally, and it's a tax base. So what the Davidians are doing is they're going to gun shows. And they're selling weapons with the paperwork, the legal paperwork. And McMahon was supposed to be in charge of filling out the paperwork. There's a fee. I don't remember what it is. I looked it up once, but it's something like 100 bucks or something. Fill out the paperwork. And then you can own this weapon in the state of Texas. And then they were going to these gun shows and they were doing, you know, they're doing all kinds of things like grenade casings on a belt that would hang from your vest and look really cool. Not live grenades or anything like that. And ammo vests and hats and different gear, they'd go to these gun shows. And that was the uh, the largest part of the revenue, other than people, few people of means had joined the group and put in larger amounts of cash as a reserve. But Their day-to-day operation was funded by these gun shows, and that was fairly recent. Uh, Back when uh, you talked to some of the Davidians that weren't there but had left earlier, they would say, "Oh yeah, didn't back when I was there in the '80s, you know, every Texas place has a couple guns around, you know, for so-called varmints." (laughs) They talk about, you know, you got to have a gun, gun or two, but. This is 122 people. I've got notes here. Let's see. 130 Branch Davidians living in this place. 41 men, 46 women, and 43 children. And as Dick Revis, he was the first one to write a book on Waco, Ashes of Waco. I believe that's the name of his, yeah. He's a a reporter in Fort Worth. And he said uh, that, well, actually, if you do the math, they're undergunned. Because if you have uh, adults uh 90 adults then uh the average texan has four guns per person or something like that and they would actually be undergunned he made it just to make the point that running a gun business in texas is not illegal and you don't raid a group for that so the whole idea of why the raid happened Why was it planned and carried out? Were they really a danger? The story later was, well, there were stories that they might be like some Charles Manson murder cult and they're going to come out and kill people in the city with all these weapons. I mean, that is just so far from anything of the sort that I've been able to find. And when you hear them talk, clearly they're not (laughs) thinking like that. But, uh, Whenever I do this kind of interview, I get accused of, uh, oh, you're whitewashing the Davidians. And look at that guy. He's such a jerk. He did this and he did that. And I want to make it clear that my only purpose was not to justify Koresh legally on on any grounds, even the February 28th reaction to the dynamic entry. That is not my field. I don't work on, you know... Military standoffs and government standoffs and who was right and who was wrong. Charges of any kind of child abuse. Uh, I do know Children and Family Services did go out to the group twice and carry out investigations and found no evidence of that. But there are stories uh, that circulate. The problem with a lot of stories that circulate about cults is that they can get compounded And uh, they can get exaggerated and so forth. And I just have to say, look, that's nothing I know about. Uh, Talk to people who are in there, who grew up in it. And there are people who can fill you in on that. But it has nothing to do with Koresh, whether he's the worst guy that ever lived or one of the better guys, the good, the bad, the ugly. One question. How do you deal with an apocalyptic group It thinks they're the last true followers, faithful to Christ, and you're in a hostage barricade situation as the FBI defined it. How do you deal with them? How do you get a peaceful resolution? And as I say in my book, and would still say to this day, what the negotiators did was correct. For the most part, not everything, but a lot of what they did, and that is to talk and try to understand and appeal to things that would be in their self-interest, like sending in the lawyer so that they were convinced that they had a good uh, chance of uh, arguing self-defense. One of the things I often point out, and I say I'm not an expert in this, but I do have eyes. If you look at that footage of the shootout, and it's everywhere all over YouTube. And those ATF agents are down behind their cars and they're they're going. Bop, 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 bop. And there's like 20 or 30 of them behind the cars. And there's not a single windshield broken of those cars. Okay. I got a notice. Now, does that mean there wasn't return fire? I don't think it means that. I think there was some return fire, but this. If it was really like worse than Vietnam, which are some of the quotes, and I hate to even say this on the radio, because if a BATF agent hears it that was there, it'd be like, you know, blankety Blake Tabor, you weren't there, you don't understand. But, you know, a lot of the deaths took place because of the group going up the ladder and breaking into what they thought was the armory, which it wasn't. It wasn't where the guns were kept. And uh, and then it's like a home invasion, and there are people, shootouts already going, and armed guys come in with stun grenades and so forth, breaking in a window and going down the hallway. They fired, they and and the ATF fired back. Several of the Davidian casualties uh, were in fact from that episode, but to shoot into a plywood building with men and women and children inside, where they're on the floor, hugging the floor. And if you saw the movie that the Dottle Brothers did, Paramount Pictures, Waco, six episodes, uh, no, no, it's a series, but scripted series, but that's Taylor Keish playing Koresh and Michael Shannon playing Gary Noisner and so forth, one of the negotiators. Uh, it captures that raid like it's chilling to watch. And it's based on David Thibodeau's account because he was in there hitting the floor and hoping not to get hit. So uh, it's just it's unbelievable, you know, putting mattresses over kids and people screaming and yelling and people wounded and killed. And it was just really, really bad. And it was bad that any ATFs agents got, uh, got killed as well, of course. And by the way, at the memorials that the Davidians hold every year for 30 years now, I was just part of the last one. I wasn't able to go personally, but over Zoom, uh, they read the names of the agents as well. They put up their pictures, and the whole thing is like, let's remember these good people who died, and it shouldn't have happened. There should have been another way to deal with it. But uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Has an article in the New Yorker. It's online. I really encourage you to Google it. Everybody that listens will give the New Yorker a big surge here. Uh, it's called How Not to Negotiate with Believers, and it's about Waco. And he read our book, my book, and other things, and really educated himself. And Michael Gladwell is very bright, as you might know if you read the New Yorker. And what he shows is what I argued if you deliver to the, an apocalyptic group the apocalypse that they're expecting, then what's going to be the outcome? In other words, you, they, The Davidians are saying, those people out there are trying to kill us, and they're Babylon. And then you act like Babylon, like running tanks over their cars, clearing the way, coming in with tear gas. And actually, it's CS gas. It's not like that little thing yet. People get to squirt <laughs> by hand. This, this, is a, this is actually outlawed by the Geneva Convention for use in war. It's uh, could potentially be very deadly and it also can start fires. So I believe that the way the tactical people went about doing it, and the negotiators generally objected because they thought they were getting somewhere, made the whole thing uh, It almost guaranteed that it would end in disaster. Now, the government would say, yeah, but that's because you got crazy David Koresh that thought that they were all going to be martyred before the end. But, you know, he didn't think that, originally at least. He might have gotten convinced of it during the siege. What he thought was that they would eventually be able to go to Israel and fight against the final war, which would be in the Middle East. There's Daniel 11, which talks about the final battle. Zechariah 14. That's not about Waco, Texas. There's no way you could read that. It's about Jerusalem and the Holy Land and armies marching in Jerusalem, as they've done so many times throughout history. So, uh, you know, it's just what should they have done? Well, I think they should have let him finish the manuscript. I think he would have come out. And uh, so what we did is we went on this radio program, Arnold and I. About an hour, and it's you can get it on, you know, you can get it on the web, uh, either the transcript or you can hear it if you want. You do a little search for it. Uh, Let's see, we did it, I think we did it on uh, April. I thought I wrote it down, might not have written it down, but it was uh, right before Passover in April, so it was well into the siege. And Dick DeGarren had been going in, the lawyer, and also uh, Jack Zimmerman, who was a lawyer for Steve Schneider, and worked out a kind of, here's what will happen if you come out peacefully. Texas Rangers will handle it, not the feds. That was big for David. He's a Texan. Once the Texas Rangers, Sheriff Harwell will be there. And uh, then they worked out who would come out first and second and so forth. And what David says in his last letter, I've got it right here, um, April 14th, that was a Wednesday before the fire. He says, uh, I'm presently being, this is to Dick, he's writing his lawyer. So this is a legal document to your lawyer. I'm presently being permitted to document in structured form the decoded messages of the seven seals. On completion of this task, I will be freed of my waiting period. I hope to finish as soon as possible, and then I will stand before man and answer any and all questions regarding my actions. He says this revelation will will not be sold. It will be available to all those who wish to know the truth. I've been praying so long for this opportunity to put the seals in written form. I've shown that when I come out, I'll be given over the hands of men and people won't be concerned with the truth of God, but just the bizarrity of me in the flesh. He knew that he would get accused of all these things. That that he that were illegal in terms of the women, underage women and so forth. So he says, uh, I will demand the first copy be given to you. And when I can see that people like Jim Tabor and Phil Arnold have a copy, I will come out, and then you can do your thing with this beast, calls himself the beast. So we would have gone down there, and we would have been there as they came out, and he would have given Dick a copy, and then he would have given us a copy, or maybe would have sent it out first to the three of us, and then he would have come out. And so what was our argument in the radio program? It was really delicate because we didn't believe he was who he said. So what we had to say is things like I'm saying to you, you know, I think these people are in there because they've honestly studied and become convinced of the things he's teaching. So we need to at least recognize that if we're going to deal with it. We'd say things like that. And then we started saying things that uh, we thought might intrigue him. And one of the things we said is his very chapter, Revelation 10. Anybody can open the Bible and read it. When the seventh messenger sounds, which he claimed to be, blows the trumpet, message goes out. He's told to eat the scroll of the book, to eat it. Now, that sounds very bizarre unless you know the Bible. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel's told to eat the scroll. Eat it means to totally absorb the message, totally absorb it digest it, and then it says, and you will prophesy again to many nations, kings, rulers, and peoples, okay, so we said, you know, if somebody, would, if somebody thought that we were living through this scenario, it sounds like the point is for the message to get out, because nobody I would say to Phil, no, nobody ever heard of David Koresh before February 28th. When I say nobody, okay, 300 people in the whole world. <laughs> We're talking about billions of people. But now he's a household name, and people are wondering, who is that crazy guy? So if there was a manuscript out that gave his message... I think there would be a lot of interest in it. Don't you, Phil? And then Phil would go, yeah, you know, and, and it does say here, I can see how he could read that and think, well, maybe my mission isn't over. We don't need to die. A prophet needs to teach his message to the world. So to us, it was, you know, very potentially convincing. And apparently it was. So did we put the idea in his head? I'm not sure of that, but. Maybe he wanted in some way to get it out. He had made that previous broadcast on March 2nd, so at least he's thinking, I want to get my message out. So I think it would have worked. Uh, I was just so devastated the day of the fire because uh, I, I didn't get to go in and know those children. But since then, you know, have gotten to know them. Of course, the ones that are dead, I just have been told about and learned all kinds of stories about. And so they kind of became, you know, kind of like my family in this extended sense of just people that I spent a lot of hours. I went to meet David's mother, Bonnie and Alderman, and spent, uh, Phil and I went to her house and talked to her afterwards and, you know, talked to all the survivors or most of them and began to learn. And the, some of the kids that had survived, a lot of kids. Let's see, I think 30-something kids were sent out, I believe. I've got it written somewhere. So um, in terms of total, let's see. 35 people came out during the siege. But uh, as far as April 19th, 76 people died, 23 children, and two of the children were unborn. So two women were pregnant. So uh, it was horrible. As far as the fire and what went on that last day, I know a lot about it, but I prefer not to do interviews on it because it's not my field of expertise. I read all the reports. I have my questions about uh, all the standard things, who shot first on the first day, how did the fire start and so forth. And I don't think the questions have been fully answered and addressed. And I think as we get further and further from it, the standard scenario years from now will be, you know, Heaven's Gate, Jonestown, Charles Manson, David Koresh, as if these are all equivalent. And I know quite a bit about jones uh jim jones and jonestown because it happened you know when i was a professor and followed it closely and so forth and he had a hold on those people but it was completely different from koresh it wasn't sitting hours going through the biblical texts so the hook that david had wasn't his wonderful charismatic personality uh, some people would even say it was kind of boring, <laughs> but it was whether you thought he was unlocking for you for the first time in history, the secrets of the seven seals, which Revelation says no one can open except the lamb. And he, his argument, if you say, well, Jesus is the lamb, his argument would be Jesus gave the revelation of the scroll that would then be opened by the lamb and i don't think it holds up exegetically but uh, apparently he convinced them it did that there'd be two lambs both slain and so that's the story but i don't know how long you want to go but you guys should jump in with some questions or whatever you want to clarify if i if i have qualified knowledge i will I will comment. My testimony and Phil's is on my YouTube channel. There's a playlist. You've got to find Waco, but once you get that, it's got the interviews with the Davidians from inside. It's got my testimony before Congress. I give a pretty impassioned uh, version of what I've told you, but obviously I don't get more than like six or eight minutes (laughs) at any one point because you congressional hearings are very much by the clock so but
1: yeah well i know we are we are running a bit over time but chris were there any questions that that you had i know i got to to ask a couple there
2: yeah the the one that i keep on thinking about dr Tabor, is this apocalyptic tradition is kind of built into christianity almost from the very beginning with the coming back of jesus yes and you know, just pretty much from there on out, like a thousand AD, we have yeah. these traditions of Jesus is coming back, the year and all in,
0: the tw- all in the
2: tw- right, exactly. Does this come from somewhere pre Christian? Before are there traditions in Rome or Greece or maybe even the East or Persia of these? apocalyptic traditions, and maybe what are some of the themes in between them that we can kind of pick out and maybe kind of, I don't know, maybe chew on a little bit?
0: Well, there are some very vague traditions, like the Greek historian Herodotus talks about the four ages, and you go from gold to silver to bronze to iron, and it's this idea that the world will get worse as time goes on and so forth. But it's really coming, uh, look, the Hebrew Bible has influences from the ancient Near East, the New Testament has influences from Roman, Greco-Roman culture, but it's the texts of the Bible that drive it, and reading them very, very ahistorically. That is, the book of Daniel can be explained to a large extent from things that happened in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes which is 165 BC. That's Hanukkah. But since the end didn't come, if you think that prophecy was right, then it can't just be him, but he becomes a type or example of a final evil ruler. So you keep pushing it off. So usually it's uh, the people of God persecuted. uh, They're the saints. And then a governmental powerful force that persecutes them and kills them. And uh, they're being forced to recant their faith and so forth and various kind of persecutions. And then you can kind of change the actors and so forth. So in the Middle Ages, Protestants said the Pope was the Antichrist. Inquisition, they're killing people because they don't believe the Catholic faith. Orthodox faith, and so that would be the Antichrist killing the saints, you know, the free church people that are more getting into just reading the Bible. Uh, the Taborites, John Huss followers, 1400s, 100 years before Luther, they, they thought for sure they were the saints. They lived, uh, Tabor as a town south of uh, Czech uh, Prague in the Czech Republic, and the enemy to them was the Habsburg Empire, uh, of, uh, headquartered in Vienna, Austria. And they did march up and wipe them out. So there you go. It's again, the same scenario. And in 1600s England, 17th century, you had Halley's Comet, the London Plague, that was an outbreak again of the Bavonic Plague. You got an earthquake, the London Fire, And you had these fifth monarchy men, they call themselves, that believe they were right near the end. But I tell you, it's never been. The 19th century in America really ramped it up. Uh, But not like the 20th century. The 19th century would be William Miller, the Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, uh, all of these groups that are very apocalyptic. But uh, what really ramps it up in the 20th century is Zionism and the state of Israel. Because now I can take a Bible and open it up, and I don't have to make Jerusalem symbolic for something else. Jerusalem is Jerusalem. And if an army's coming from the north, it's coming from the north, you know, and so forth. So that's lent itself to this idea that uh, the Jews will rebuild a temple on the holiest spot in Judaism. And sacred also to Muslims, and so forth. and basically World War III breaking out over, you know, religious disputes over holy holy places and holy land that's happened before Crusades. Saladin, same thing. who's going to control Jerusalem? So uh, there are dynamics. Um, I've written several articles on this. The way I would summarize it is you have a text that's fixed. Then you have context that is fluid, like we're trying to fit the context with the text. And then you have players, candidates, who can rise up and interpret the text and say, this is it. And in every generation, you get kind of that combination. So uh, one book that covers it through history is, is a famous book called The Pursuit of the Millennium by Norman Cohen, C-O-H-E-N. Uh, it's a textbook I require. I teach a course on apocalypticism. so. Uh, but yeah, there's some antecedents, but I think they're more, it really is the Bible. The Bible is the key to Western civilization. Did you know Isaac Newton was more interested in Bible prophecy than physics? Yes. Yeah, he was. He's, he's doing calculations on the 2300 days of daniel and the 1335 and the 1290 and when do we start here and come up here and so there you go (laughs) what do you think they were kind of past that a lot but not about a third of the i'd say about a third of the country is into bible prophecy and you could easily go to 50 percent if something definitive enough happened
2: we grew up in Arkansas so we uh yeah you know <laughs> yeah we <laughs> understand the <laughs> context of that but yeah. what do you think it is about the society that lends itself to these gr- these religious movements these apocalyptic religious movements being more prevalent or less prevalent
0: well clearly you know we think of times of trouble so when the context, the there's an apocalypse in the Gospels. It's called the synoptic apocalypse, the little apocalypse. Apocalypse is the word revelation, like the book. And it's Mark 13 is the original, and Matthew has it, Luke has it, but Mark 13. And that starts out like there'll be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be earthquakes. There'll be famines. There'll be trouble. And that's what people say when they hear about, oh, well, we've always had these troubles. Okay, so that's actually in the prophecy. That's not it. That's not it. And then it says that the gospel will be preached to the whole world, and then the end will come. Well, that has given Christians incentive not only to go save souls, but to make the way for Jesus to come back. And then it talks about Jerusalem being besieged by armies a desolating sacrilege set up in the temple and so forth. And then you get into this whole thing that you grew up with, you know, the antichrist will come and he'll do this. And Tim LaHaye's books left behind. That yeah. Read those as a kid. <laughs> right. So, you know, that's just out there. What ramps it up would be obviously economic and environmental disasters and disease or anything like that. Earthquakes, but that's, you know, people can always say, well, we've always had those. I think it's when they think that there's a scenario being played out in the Middle East that they, because they're fundamentalists, they can just turn the page. Oh, my God, here we are here, and here we are here, and here we are here. So there were a whole bunch of people during COVID that said the the vaccine was the mark of the beast. This, was, this wasn't this was just a little fringe idea. Millions of people said Because you have to receive the mark in your arm. And then I don't know what they said about the forehead, but maybe that you have to have your temperature. That was it. Yeah. We check your temperature and we check whether you had the vaccine or you can't buy and sell. And so there were these ideas like you can't go to this meeting. You can't go to that meeting. You can't participate in things. Like say you're on the stock exchange. Well, they I'm sure they had a rule that you got to be vaccinated to go on the floor. You know, so there are people coming up with that. So anytime there's something like that, uh, because you got to have a final evil ruler, he has to oppress the people of God. He has to set up some kind of a system whereby they're being identified and pigeonholed for persecution and so forth. And uh, those seem to be the prerequisites. But, uh, you know, if there's ever going to be an end, it should have come in World War II, because there's no better candidate ever in history for the Antichrist than Adolf Hitler. And also, also, he destroys the world practically, and he had plans to go to the Middle East. If Rommel had not been defeated, by uh it was montgomery right the british general uh he was going to go up from the north i mean the south from egypt to jerusalem and the nazis were going to come down down from the north and they were going to annihilate all the jews in palestine (laughs) and they'd made agreements with the muslim population to they had made agreements with the muslim population to uh
1: To make an alliance.
0: And I'm sure he would have enjoyed standing on the Mount of Olives and saying, you know, he's king of king and lord of lords like Nebuchadnezzar did and all the other conquerors of Jerusalem. So that's always out there. But uh, let's hope history goes in more diverse ways. It's scary. And it does appeal to. Conspiracy theories. Underground stuff. QAnon type stuff, no moon landing, flat Earth. Uh, <clears throat> do, do you think, that, the, is, well, do you think radio, that is well the radio at sorry. first it was radio, then television, and radio's not gone out, but particularly the internet now and YouTube, it's it's apocalyptic in the sense that. In the past, it would take months for news to even reach another area of the world. And now it goes around the world instantly, whether it's fake news or not. And now we have to worry about chat, (laughs) GTP, and all that stuff. And whether, um, is it GTP or GPT? I forget. GPT, yeah. Yeah. Whether it's going to all not i'm not worried about takeover and all that i I think that's kind of silly but like you can unplug a computer and it can't do anything but the idea of um so much fakery that there'll be no way for the average person to tell and we've already seen examples that people have just done for fun so did you hear what biden said today can you believe it it Mike, he didn't know it was being recorded listen to this what he really believes hope they don't catch hunter because i don't know they might find out where we put that money in that swiss bank account and if so we are done you know or something like that totally fake it will sound just like him mm. and they're saying only chat gpt can be smart enough to figure out that it's a fake because you have to have programs to Identify the programs. So anyway, that's scary. And that, I mean, I think we're going to live, continue to live through very apocalyptic, stressful times. I really do. And the Bible people will be right there up front, ready to interpret it. So well, I think that's part of the uh,
1: the staying power of Christianity. Honestly, is that you get to be in the middle of the story if you are interpreting it in that kind of apocalyptic way where it's it's during your time
0: and it's been during people's
1: time for like 2000 years and it will just keep being that way
0: and i you know people long nobody wants to die i guess uh there's an old sunday school joke uh about the teacher teaching the kids about heaven and how beautiful it is and going on and on for the whole class and then she goes how many of you want to go to heaven it's like a third grade class or something and everybody's like i do and one kid doesn't raise his hand, and she goes, Johnny, you don't want to go to heaven? And he goes, I thought you were getting a group to go now. So I think that illustrates the way people feel. They don't want to die, but I think there's an excitement to think that there's some plan, that history's not random. It is moving toward a purpose. And if especially Christians who believe that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and he is going to return, then what would be more exciting, even if it's scary? And, of course, you got the secret rapture to take care of the scariness because you get to leave, according to that theory. And then he comes back later visibly. Uh, But what could be more exciting to, to think, oh, my God, this is all this is this is it this is really real i think if they had to live through any of the troubles i mean have you ever read the book of revelation you probably have the body count because first it's like a third of this diet then a third of that and you keep doing thirds and fourths and finally i don't even know how many people you have left but i mean it would just be horrible it's nothing anybody would want but there's this kind of idea that uh, I'll fly away. So, you know, you should have believed in Christ. <laughs> so anyway, and also pro-Israel stuff, Christian pro-Israel stuff is driven by some really questionable motives. They can say all day, we love the Jewish people. They're so wonderful. But if you get them to be honest, they're, they're lost you know they're not saved because they rejected Christ. He who rejects He who rejects me, I will reject before my Father in heaven. They rejected Him. The Jewish people as a whole rejected Christ, so they're lost. Jesus is going to say, "Depart from me." But if we can work with them and encourage the embassy in Jerusalem and Jewish sovereignty and move this prophecy along then maybe th- we'll be able to teach them, look at all this stuff happening. This is all predicted by Jesus. So you need to believe in him and so forth. So some of my Jewish friends, I have—I go to Israel a lot, and a lot of Jewish and Christian friends, but they say, yeah, they love us. All right. They love us to death. <laughs> you know, like we need to be pawns in this apocalyptic mm-hmm. game. A bunch of us die, you know, so they're not ready for that. So."
1: Well, with that, we will conclude our interview with Dr. Tabor. If you like Dr. Tabor, you can check out his book, Why Waco? Cults in the Battle for Religious Freedom in America. We've provided the link in our show notes. You can also go to jamestabor.com to see more of his work or check out his YouTube channel. All that's going to be in the show notes. If you like the show and want to support us, you can go to patreon.com and subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get exclusive patrons only episodes. So please go ahead and check that out as well. Once again, in the show notes. Everything's there. Uh, We'll see you next week with another episode of Coast to Coast PM. Uh, Thank you all and see you soon.